Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Welcome to In the Know. I have Jeff Little legend. Legend. Thank you for joining me. Really, please. (laughs) (laughs) In his own mind, for sure, yes. Do people sometimes, does it ever happen that the two legends are conflated gordon moore and oh Jeffrey. oh yeah you know, <laughs> he has about three more zeros to his net worth than i do so usually that's <laughs> able to separate the two of us <laughs> so i mean i consider the classics of the canon that you have contributed to be crossing the chasm and inside the tornado i think certainly i'm probably best known for crossing the chasm and i think that's fair i mean i think it's kind of like you know a band's first song that kind of you know gets popular and that's definitely the the one that people know me by interestingly and inside the tornado i see is kind of a sequel to crossing the chasm because after you get across the chasm what happens next Absolutely. and then I, just, I would mention one thing a bunch of books in between but the last book is actually called zone to win and the reason i think it's important is it's how do you cross the chasm if you're inside an established enterprise? You don't have venture capital. So you have to divert resources from your profitable core business in order to put it into your unprofitable new business. And that creates a crisis of prioritization that has really caused tech a lot of nightmares. And so that's been my last book. And in a way, it follows the arc, I think, of some of your peers, the sort of great theorists of um, startups, entrepreneurship, innovation, and change. Folks seem to start, like, let's say, Christensen, you know, on the uh, opportunity of disruption, and they try and figure a way, or even like Steve Blank, um, and they try and figure a way to help big companies do it. And I have a quarrel with that, so that would be great. That's what pundits are supposed to do, quarrel with each other, right? Yes. So my quarrel is that they over-focus on the incubation, what I ended up calling the incubation zone, where they say, you should really act like more like a startup, you should be more agile, you should fast fail, you should minimum viable product, you should disrupt, blah, blah, blah. In all of which is fine. In fact, it's important to get started. But when you go to scale, it doesn't work. And so what happens, because in order to get to scale, you have to use the infrastructure of your core business to get to scale. That's your asset. And you have to involve your customer base. That's your other asset. And both of them require a very specific kind of treatment that I think gets ignored by the earlier works. And so what, what happens is people embrace these things, like GE being a great example. They embrace the hell out of, you know, the uh, lean, lean startup, but, they, but getting it to scale is a real challenge. I, I don't want to set anybody up for failure, I guess, is my issue. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and isn't this the grand arc of your argument in Chasm and Tornado? I mean, there's less advice from you on how to get started. There's more advice from you on understanding how to get across. Yeah, totally. No, let me be clear. The lean startup and Blank's work and that stuff was really important for pre, for before the chasm. I did not deal with that properly or in any depth at all. They nailed it. And particularly, they also nailed it for B2C businesses in a digital world, which was a non-existent category when I was writing Crossing the Chasm. And in the digital world with the minimum product, freemium, you know, and, and creating viral marketing, all that kind of stuff, the, sort of the acquire, engage, monetize, and list wheel of fortune, or whatever it is, all of that was missing in Crossing the Chasm. And, and Crossing the Chasm and Inside the Tornado really are, to this day, B2B frameworks, much more than, and B2B2C, but not B2C. So the, the, all of that, absolutely. But the thing that is important about Crossing the Chasm and Inside the Tornado is how you do it the first time. 
And the one thing about doing it the first time, lots of challenges, as you well know, and you've lived and succeeded through, is you're not conflicted. You only have one place to go. You have, you have one product, you have one dream, you have one vision, you have one technology. Win or die. Exactly. Win or die. You go all the way around. But what happens when you're successful? Because Zone to Win starts by listing 54 iconic companies that don't exist anymore. And they just crushed it the first time. But they couldn't do it the second time. That's the difference between the two. The work, I guess, it comes from your roots and experience prior in B2B and enterprise? I mean, you, yeah, you so, sort of, so what happened, you write yeah, and so think I, like yeah. the world's greatest sales guy for enterprise. <laughs> no, no, it's really interesting, by the way. I was the world's greatest opener. I was the world's worst closer. So I actually thought I was a sales guy for a while, but I realized after a while, you know, if you can open any door but can't close them, it's called marketing, not sales. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I was able to migrate to a marketing consultancy uh, by a guy named Regis McKenna, who was the iconic leader of the time. And, uh, and that was huge because once I found where I, was, I belonged, it all went very well. And what was cool about being there, and then what's been great about the work ever since, is frameworks let you work with a very large number of companies, much more than you could work with. If you're doing research-based consulting the way traditional consultancies do or the way you do in academics, you can work with a handful of companies, but you have to go deep in order to get the work. In a framework-based business, you actually work – I've probably worked with 1,000 companies, a bit more wow. than 1,000 companies. And what's cool about that – now, you, you can be you know, a mile wide and an inch deep, so you have to watch out for that. But what's cool about that is if you, if you have a pattern recognition business, which is kind of what frameworks are about, it's just it's invaluable. And I was able to start that at Regis because I was a horrible manager, so, so nobody wanted me to manage anything. But they did want me to contribute to the work, and I did, and, uh, and so that was great. In enterprise, and so for me, our business, Notel, I'm learning, and um, I've, done, I've done a bunch of companies that are a consumer. You know, so Virgin Mobile, lucky to be like the junior guy co-founding it with the real guy, and that thing got big, but it was a consumer business. Now, of course, there are certain important deals that must be done to get, get anything rolling. Then we did a smartphone thing called Peak that ended up getting acquired by SoftBank and I built a, like a neuroscience company called Halo Neuroscience, and that's another consumer product. But Notel serves large companies. And so I have been using your stuff as revelation. I mean, <laughs> I'm back into it years after first having been exposed and just going page by page to learn and understand how the B2B sale works. And I guess the moment of invention is a little less critical. And perhaps those are the unique contributions of the lean startup community. Because often for enterprise, there is a thing that enterprises should already do. And people sort of know and it's been around a while. And, and really the challenge is to dive, dive into them. The enterprise business model has three buying constituencies that fuse in the, in the consumer model. So in the consumer model, the economic buyer, the end user, and the technical buyer are all the same person. So the way you can market, you can market to one person, you can use personas, you can do all that kind of cool stuff. In an enterprise, the economic buyer is typically an executive in a line of business position who needs some sort of innovation to buy. But his group isn't going to do the innovation, they're just going to profit from it. Then there are the end users who are in the function or the department or the business process that are going to re-engineer the process using the new technology. And then there are the technology people who actually understand the technology itself to do it. And to close an enterprise sale, you've got to get all three of those constituencies aligned. And that's when the technology adoption lifecycle came in, because if there's no risk, it's not hard to get people aligned. When there's risk, it is hard to get people aligned. And what's weird about the enterprise is that each constituency has a different view of risk. And so, so what the chasm, crossing the chasm stuff was for and what the tornado stuff was for 
was as the risk equation changes, you need to adapt your marketing strategy to the new risk equation. And just being perceptive about the risk equation is critical. As an entrepreneur, it's, it's hard to be perceptive about the risk equation because you're so bought into to, you know, to all the excitement of what you're doing. You don't see it as well. And, and that was the challenge, at least with the entrepreneurs that, that I was working with. And, and, you know, working with Regis McKenna, you must have been in the milieu where Apple's on the other side of the table. And you've got this like reality distortion guy who's out there to make a dent in the universe. And oh, gosh. I mean, would... in a way that is, is he right? Or does he not no, understand? No, no, he, well, visionary people, in today's version of that would be, well, somewhere between Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos kind of persons. These people see stuff. Well, first of all, it's not that it's not that other pundits don't see what they see, but these people are like, I'm going to go there. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, not, I'm just going. I'm not going to write an article about it. We're going to do this. And so they have this incredibly powerful will, and they have this incredibly powerful standards that they hold people to, which are, make them very challenging uh, to work with. But they create what we call the early market for sure. And the early market is made up of the customers who believe what you believe. And so these people are all amazing at creating belief systems. That's what the reality distortion field is referring to. You know, you would you'd stay with, you spend time with Steve or if you, or Jeff or Elon or any of these people, and you believe what they believe. And so you kind of buy into that. The chasm is the gap between that cohort and the rest of the world who is not bought in. And so the rest of the world has to be courted in a very different way. And so that's when crossing the chasm came onto the table, when it just was a situation where he said, look, you can't just preach more passionately to an unbeliever. You actually have to approach people who don't believe in a different way. I attribute this model that you just laid out, and especially the the sort of committee-like purchasing process of the enterprise, to you. I mean, in my teaching, I, I most often associate this package of ideas as simply coming from your work. Am I right? Or are there other sources that, of the I mean, I think, Look, yeah. I, I mean, I, so if you wanted to say, well, how would you place the, the arc of Jeffrey's work or the oeuvre or whatever we want to... So you'd say, look, the technology adoption lifecycle was introduced by this guy, Everett Rogers, who I never met. But seeds. Did, the diffusion of innovations. The diffusion of innovations. That, was, that yeah. was the beginning. Then Regis, I, met, I, I encountered that model through Regis in a book called The Regis Touch, where Regis introduced it to high-tech marketing. And what was revolutionary, I mean, it seems, boy, so long ago, it's hard to realize how revolutionary it was. At the time that Regis introduced the technology adoption lifecycle, the gold standard in marketing was Procter & Gamble ads. And everybody was trying to use advertising, consumer-style advertising, and kind of corporate brand advertising to sell disruptive technology into enterprises. And it just wasn't working because people would say, I just don't believe that stuff. Consumer advertising was never designed to deal with risk. So that was a huge, huge deal. So, okay, so that, that was Regis. Then I got my hands on it and I put it in the chasm. And after that, I think largely the people that influenced, I mean, Clay Christensen certainly had a big influence with the Innovator's Dilemma. That was great. And that, that's what actually got me interested in large corporations. There were some other really good uh, writers. In the 90s, there were a bunch of really good business books. Adrian Sawatsky wrote a bunch that were really good. You know, Fred Reichelt wrote that book about, about customer loyalty. There was a bunch of them good. And then what was interesting, until, the, until Blank and, and, and Reese came along and did their stuff, there was kind of a dearth. And even now, I think business books, I don't think they have the, the prestige or the power that they had in the 90s. I think it, maybe it's just because we're, got, we're so overloaded with so many other information sources and media, hmm. like, like podcasts, for example. Do you think it's like a market structure change? Or are we just waiting for the next big idea? 
It's a good question. I think because I think what you just described as the 90s was the post hoc analysis and explanation of a new thing that had been invented in the 1960s and 70s in Silicon Valley. A bunch of huge behemoths get created. The guys who were around for that sit down and write down what they did. That's you. That's others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe we're just waiting for the next big idea. Uh, Okay, well, so we're, we're in the middle of it. I mean, the digital transformation, we are today in the middle of we're becoming a digital first species, which is weird. Species. Species. The human species is becoming digital first. If you're a digital first species, what you realize is every single process in education, in healthcare, in government, in business, in social life, in warfare, in whatever, it was all analog first. It was never designed to be digital first. And if you redesign it to be digital first, it works a lot better, faster, and cheaper. So we're in the middle of a massive massive secular shift of so there may be um, there may be some great books to be written yet that uh, I, th- I think, I think so. now I one of the very perceptive uh, i mean there are some like incredible passages of great perception in, in these in chasm and in tornado which i'm, I'm going to use as my sort of core for our conversation here and mm-hmm. one of them is where you lay out one of the perils of a company that's moving into the big early adopter part after the chasm and you're encouraging a level of strategic patience and vigilance, the journey through the bowling alley, um, as you call it. And you have this amazing passage where you describe a, a classic pitfall of the visionary CEO who doesn't need any of the odd numbers in the, in the, in the list of integers. It's, it's an incredible psychology of someone who wants just skip all the way to the answer. Yeah. I see it all around me. I see it. And say more. I mean, who is that okay. person? Is, is, well, sure. So, so, so basically, if you think about it, so let's make them, I think they're a visionary. And so a visionary, you know, tends to see the present and the future through the same verbs. They use the present tense. They're often using an implied future tense because they're seeing their vision realized. And then they're, they're totally committed to realizing their vision. Basically, the early market, we call the early market, the pre-chasm early market where people believe what you believe, and the tornado, which is when people say, by the way, in the tornado, it's not that people believe what you believe. Now, let me give you the four things, because this is really kind of key to getting the psychology here. The early market before the chasm is customers who say, we believe what you believe. The crossing the chasm segment. So on that, one first, one, on that first one, you know, I go to the homebrew computer club with some stuff I made at home, and they're like, awesome, yeah, that's exactly what I was wanting to make. Thank you. Yeah. Right? I mean, just to retail yeah. the sort of login yeah. job. So, yeah. so there's two groups in the early market, the technology enthusiast, which sounds very much like your homebrew club, and the visionary customer, who is not necessarily a technologist, but who says, I could use this technology to change the world. So they may not be the technologist, but they're going to buy the technology first, and they're going to, they want to be first. But both the visionary customer and the technology enthusiast, the visionary executive sponsor and the technology enthusiast, they both are completely, they buy in. So it's, it's evangel, it's, that's what we call them evangelists, you know, back in the day. Yeah. That was because that was what we were doing. When you cross the chasm, the second group do not buy in that way. What they say is, we don't necessarily believe what you believe, but we're in trouble, and we need what you have. But in order for that to work, we have that whole thing about crossing the chasm. You have to provide the whole product, the complete solution to their very difficult problem, all that kind of stuff. And so that's what they're all focused on. So we have the we believe what you believe group. Then we transition to the we need what you have group. And then the tornado, which is what I wanted to get to here, is they don't necessarily need what you have. And they certainly don't necessarily believe what you believe. What they say is we want what they have. 
So in other words, by the tornado, it's actually the herd has said, this is an iPhone. I want an iPhone. I don't want this BlackBerry thing anymore. I want an iPhone. All of a sudden, they stampede, and that's what creates all that tornado dynamic, because they're all wanting to get whatever the other guy got. The reason, now go back to the psychology of the visionary. So the visionary is, is the believe what you believe, and he sees right past the bowling alley, doesn't even see the bowling alley, and goes straight to, everybody's going to want this. Everybody's going to want this. It's going to be a tornado. And they're right, but they have to go through the process of adolescence to get to that place. And they just they want to jump straight to the realization of the vision. The psychology of the different groups is another area, I think, of tremendous insight. And I wonder, you don't use the language of psychology directly. Of course, you describe mental states, I think, as you sort of compartmentalize these different phases of the adoption curve. I mean, if Everett Rogers gave us that uh, S-curve on adoption, to describe the participants in there, he gives you some clues, you know, the, the seed farmers and island, all that. And then in your work, you go far deeper into, you know, what do they believe? What do they want? Who else are they looking at? And what are their feelings? But I wonder if you, did you literally approach the problem as a inquiry into the psychology of these different body behaviors and how you might differentiate them and apply psychometrics to them and to help categorize and, and distinguish? Yeah. The journey, not the method. So it's really interesting because you and I both have a doctorate degrees. Mine happens to be in medieval English literature. So it didn't give me a lot of the old psychometric stuff. But what it well, did give philosophy, me, but it doesn't give you exactly. a framework, right? Yeah. What literature gives you is this sense of persona and these different types of personas. And you, you, can, you can have various frameworks for sorting out different types of characters and, and whatever. I think I was probably creating personas. And the personas came from just my experience of being, so if I had 10 years in enterprise sales and in enterprise marketing, and so for 10 years, I was just being exposed over and over and over again to conversations about people who were in some stage of the buying journey. And I was at three different startups, uh, none of which were particularly successful. So I learned a lot about chasms, not so much about tornadoes. But at the end of that, you kind of thought, well, okay, come on, I, I can sort this out. And so in sorting it out, it's sorted out around these personas. And the pragmatist persona, the, the key to the pragmatist persona is, I am not an expert in this technology. I'm not the doctor. I should not self-prescribe. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to listen to whatever you are pitching me. But after you leave, I'm going to talk to my peers. And basically, my rule is I'm not going to do it until other people have done it successfully. And so that's my rule. Basically, no matter how visionary you are, no matter how evangelical, no matter how impassioned, no matter how good the demo is, I'm going to let you leave the room, and I'm going to make my decision in consulting with my peers. And so the whole notion of word-of-mouth marketing, which was clearly everybody knew word-of-mouth marketing was the key to this thing, but they weren't thinking it through. Why was it the key? And it's the key because it's a risk-bearing decision, from a, and a pragmatist doesn't trust the expert. They want to trust their peer. In your characterization of the sort of buyer psychologies in these different communities, essentially, there and, and I guess, you know, they sort of live side by side, a pragmatist next to an innovator, next to an adopter, next to a late majority. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah they, 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 they can share a cubicle even. <laughs> in that analysis, I mean, it provides so much richness about who is across the table from you when you are the company. And uh, I wonder if you have reflected, or maybe I just haven't come to the work, 
on who's on your side of the table and how your organization varies. Oh, like you have this incredible characterization of the visionary, you know, the CEO who's yeah. going to fumble over. But how about self-perception in an organization? Yeah, that's a great point. So basically, if you're thinking about, it's a little bit like when you're playing basketball and you're trying to say, well, the players on my team, should I post up against what players on their team? If you think about the, in the early market, it really is the visionary entrepreneurial founder posting up against the economic buyer, visionary economic buyer. And that's the key dialogue that happens for those first set of sales, which are, you know, very aspirational, very, very um, evangelical. So that's fine. So then when you're crossing the chasm, the key idea, the key thing that unites the people at the table is a joint concern to address a very problematic use case. This is a commitment. The customer has that commitment because they're on the hook for it. And the vendor has made that commitment as their strategy for crossing the chasm. So, Which means so the people at the table are a little different, huh? I mean, I guess the totally CEO, different. and if they're the visionary, they got to show up and say they support, but probably everything that comes out of their mouth is a little too elliptical, a little too long range, a little too airy and visionary. And you yeah. need some hardcore folks who are like, I made a list, here's how I'm going to deliver, here's the schedule, we're going to get it done. Well, but even before that, the pragmatist in pain, before they hear about the operation that you're going to conduct and how you're going to conduct the operation, they want to spend a lot of time making sure you really appreciate their problem, their disease. They want to spend 80% of their time with you on the diagnosis and only 20% on the prescription. And the, our ten, the tendency of people is to, again, this is, by the way, a tornado sales technique that causes failure in the bowling alley. If you rush to the solution too soon, the pragmatist doesn't feel that you've actually owned the problem. The pragmatist in pain, we call them. The person you want to put across the table from them originally, ideally, came from their industry and actually has experienced that pain and can look them in the eye and say, boy, I know where you're coming from. I, I had that problem myself. And therefore, they go, wow, you've got somebody on your team that speaks my language. Now I'm feeling a lot better about you than I did before. You still need the technical experts to actually make it work, but you don't need the visionary person anymore. In fact, the visionary person is dangerous because mm -hmm. they'll just scare the pragmatists. They'll say, well, you just, you're trying to execute your vision. You're not, you don't care about me. And so they worry about that. Oh, that is so fascinating. And I, and I guess your narrative of the, the sort of words in the room, if you back up a bit, that's actually the marketing of a company that's at that stage. It's like, we understand you, we come from you, we were made from you. Yeah. And the key thing is that you, you, you not only do you have to say those words, they have to be true. So one of the problems about marketing is, you know, that, well, particularly in today's political climate, that we've sort of detached words from truth, not a good state to be in. So we need to reattach truth to the words. And that opens the door. That opens the door to the pragmatists. Yeah. So then, yeah, because then the, once you get those early cohorts who were pragmatists in pain, but they're pragmatists, which means they're credible as references for other pragmatists who may not be in pain, as opposed to visionaries who are not credible as references, because visionaries take these gigantic leaps that pragmatists think are just way too, they're overly ambitious for, for the situation. So you, you show up and show some credible empathy. Okay, that opens the door. And you were referring to your, I'm, I'm sure very modestly, to your troubles in your early career as a sales guy who could open doors but not get deals done, I suppose. Yeah, that would be and true. If, if, the empathy, if empathy gets to the you would have Let me be clear. You would have fired me if, if you had met me earlier <laughs> in my career. You, if you had any, at least if you're any good, you would have fired me. <laughs> okay, so the door gets open, but then you got to close that deal too, right? I mean, the pragmatists believes at this point, all right, these guys understand me, you know, their problem statement is amazing. And how do you get those first pragmatists to pull the trigger and wire the money? 
Well, so this is important. So because, and this is where, you know, the don't look like a good salesperson to the traditional sales manager, but for crossing the chasm, you're actually the best salesperson they have. Because what you do is you slow down the sales cycle in order to make absolutely certain that you've checked all the boxes and that this person does not fail. Because the key to the crossing the chasm is you cannot let your customer fail. If your customer fails crossing the chasm, then what happens is the word of mouth goes out and they say, well, did you try so-and-so? And they said, yeah, you know, they really tried hard, but at the end of the day, uh, I, it didn't work. And as soon as another pragmatist hears that, you're dead in that segment. It's, it's over. Because they just assume that it's not going to work. They're not, and then, by the way, you're not, they don't treat you as a villain. They just say, well, it's too bad, you know, because it would have been nice if it had worked, but I guess I was expecting too much. And so it's really important you do that. So as a salesperson, therefore, the way you close that sale is you build like, here's the idea, here are the seven things that could go wrong, and here's how we're going to prevent every one of those things from happening. And this is what we call the whole product. You go down the checklist and you say, and by the way, Mr. Customer, you have a job to do here too, and if you don't do your job, it also can fail. So don't just, you know, we've got to all work together to make this thing happen. That kind of thinking isn't the way normal sales are closed. And so most salespeople think, well, that's a waste of time and, you're, you know, you should just be qualifying people out or you're doing something. The sales behaviors that people were endorsing were not conducive to doing that kind of diligence. And so that was the problem. And it's because that deal is a step in a chain reaction. Yes. The importance of that deal far exceeds whatever money you get from that deal because that deal begins the credibility, the word of mouth credibility that you're going to have in your segment. And once that reference, the thing we learned from the early Crossing the Chasm projects is if you go into a segment that has a very tough problem and you solve that problem with one customer, two customers, about the third or fourth customer, if there's, let's say, the, the top 30 companies in that industry, if you get two or three companies in that industry who you solved it, everybody hears about it, and the other 27 start calling you. I mean, it really is phenomenally uh, productive once you get over that hump. But if you don't get over that hump, you don't get a second chance. So the whole product, great empathy up front, but totality of delivery gets built into that deal getting done. Do you concede on price? No, you don't, you don't concede on price because it's a little bit like, I, I, my joke about that is discount heart surgery, nine ninety nine this Saturday only. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, mm, I don't think this is the one I want to buy. These people are in pain and they're taking risk. And so... Well, then the, do you just charge more? I mean, should you just charge double? Well, you, well, what you do is, what you have to realize is you're going to run a services-led project. It's not a complete – later on in the tornado, you ship largely just your standard offer. In the early market, it's all custom, where it's like a, it's like a wedding. It's like a custom thing. In the crossing the chasm, it's sort of halfway in between. It's a replicatable services-led offer, but it is services-led. And so the first thing is they have to pay for the services. And by the way, they want to pay for the services because they want the best. And you're not trying to gouge them, but you should make very high margins in the bowling alley because – you're solving a problem that's very expensive for them to live with. My view about customers is they are happy to give you a dime. If you save them a dollar, they're happy to give you a dime. They're actually at 15 cents, they start thinking you're gouging them. And so basically, you're looking for a problem that's 10x more than the solution that you're selling. And those are the problems that define the bowling alley. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit 
and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Sometimes, and you know, like this flow that we're in on landing with that first Lighthouse account, you might want to screen off a couple of the players on the other side if you think about the technical buyer, the economic buyer, and, and the end user. Yes. It is tempting to screen off that economic buyer and tell them, hey, you don't even have to go check with finance. It doesn't matter. It's going to be free this time. No. So that's the difference between lean startup and B2C and B2B. The, the free this time first works fine for low-risk adoption. By the way, it's got to be purely digital. You can't afford to do services let offers for free, but you could do digital offers for free. And people say, kind of try and buy, land and expand, you know, viral marketing, you know, that kind of stuff. That works for kind of like infection from below, if you will, just let it spread around and build up and build up. The B2B problem is needs a much more direct professional attention and a, and a much more constructive intervention. It requires an intervention, so it doesn't work virally. Because the internal cost in the organization is very substantial. The price that they will pay in money is modest compared to the marshalling of internal. Totally. You are a rounding error in their world. When you're solving a bowling alley problem, whatever the price of your project is, the only problem you have is there's typically the process that you're correcting is a departmental process. It might be cross-functional, but it's often departmental. That department may not have enough money to pay for your project. That's why you involve the economic buyer who's actually saying, but you don't understand that department is holding my entire business hostage. So you say, that's correct. That's why you have to fund this project in order to free your business from that trap because you've funded the department to do the process they're running today, but that process is broken. You need to fund the fix to that process. And that takes some salesmanship because the department person is not necessarily a great salesperson for this idea. This is why it's so important to have domain expertise so that you're credible when you talk about the problem with the economic buyer. They go, oh, yeah, you really do understand what we're going through. Let's tackle freemium. This last 15 years or so, I I guess it was a popular idea that you could use the Dropbox go-to-market against enterprise. And I think you're saying it's wrong. It's not wrong. Let me tell you where it works. It worked for Dropbox and the Yammers. Anybody who essentially said we have a social media type or, or let's say a highly democratic communication mechanism, a Slack, you know, any of these things, you say, well, look, I mean, th- this is addictive, so we can use a freemium model. And then you, if you want to pay for more support, and by the way, if you're going after small business today, if you're going after truly small businesses with like a Google Apps or a you know, I'm on the board of a company called Keep Infusionsoft. They have a CRM for small business. You need a freemium offer to get into the market, and then typically, then you up you upsell through that. And, and small business and consumer are virtually the same. Exactly, I mean, in, exactly, in exactly. Because remember, it's back to that issue: is the economic buyer, the end user, and the technical buyer three separate departments and constituencies, or is it the or same? Or is it one head? 
Yeah. yeah. If it's one head, then you can do that. That, I think, works. But you have to be – the thing with free trial, I think we've – it's important is that if your product isn't viral enough, it then it doesn't work as well as you want it to. So you have to think about how much activation energy is required to start the, the reaction. It's like, do you need to catalyze the reaction with a project? If so, then freemium is not going to work. But if it, if it just – Internal like, enterprise virality, Yeah. I mean, yeah. and I think you're being generous in the case of, of Dropbox and Slack. They, they are certainly very large and valuable businesses. It's unclear that their go-to-market is the quote-unquote Dropbox go-to-market anymore. No, it's not anymore. It's just like you're <laughs> Didn't you start somewhat virally? I mean, you said you focused on the enterprise now, but did Notel start by focusing on the enterprise? We focused on businesses. I guess they were startups, and I guess they were a bit smaller than the guys we serve today. But we were, and, and yes, and, and they were smaller. So the economic and technical buyer was one person, the CEO of a 50-person company, let's say. And, and, Which is and a I cool way to start. I mean, what's cool about, by the way, and you were, weren't you finding product market fit? Yeah. I really want to make sure we give plenty of credit to the people, who, you know, to, to Eric and Steve and all those guys, because the idea of product market fit, which is not an idea I ever came up with, is transformative. And so you, you go, wow, that, that really does, that, that does oh, it capture it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I don't take you, and I don't take you as, um, you know, sort of debating them, but I think the way that we're laying it out helps to clarify and contrast when different approaches are suitable. You know, I mean, the patterns that exist in our business, and I think the lessons to learn from them come from the richness of variety of situations that there are and how to apply the different patterns and strategies to yeah, achieve yeah. the outcome. And I think, like, this is such a classic playbook for enterprise and, and selling to large companies. There is um, a different way that this story is described by Mark Cranny. Um, it's like passing a law through Congress. I think I can get where that might go, but I don't think I know this the, story. The enterprise sale yep. is like putting a bill through Congress. It starts with a representative and then a working group, and then it gets to subcommittee and needs to make it through committee to the floor. Then there's a vote, and the Senate still needs to <laughs> thumbs up or thumbs <laughs> down, and it could get vetoed. Oh. And, oh, by the way, even once it's law, the Supreme Court may come back and toss it out. Right? There's all these decisions <laughs> and stakeholders. Oh, God. Oh, this, is like, this is like the story of my sales life. Oh, yeah, this is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you can, uh, you can protest in front of the Capitol and, and get people's attention, but it's a long way for the money's in the bank. And, and I'm, I'm amazed you haven't heard that. No, that well, you know, I'm just, just, you know, ignorant, so you don't worry about it. The West Coast doesn't read stuff, you know. We just hang out in the sunshine. But it's clearly very influenced by um, the way you lay it all out. That's great. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So can a large company do it? I mean, so part of what you were helping me to understand is how that sale to the pragmatist works. And then I think the system, the sort of society does the work, right? The word of mouth and the amplification. And then you have to make some really disciplined choices when you get to the stage of the tornado, for example, because you started by over-serving your customer with this whole product with really careful empathy and detailed understanding. And now you've built an organization that's made for that. You got to turn. Yeah. There's a management meeting one day where you say, guys, we're not listening anymore. Now we're just going to shovel stuff out the door as fast as we can. Well, what happens is the world starts saying, where's mine, where's mine, where's mine, where's mine? And if you don't show up with, with an offer, this is where things like sales coverage matter a ton. Because it has to do with secular spending. We call them waves of technology. But a wave of technology adoption is accompanied by a secular change in spending, meaning a bunch of budget which didn't exist before has been created. And the budget creation process happens in the early market and crossing the chasm and in the bowling alley. By the time you get to the tornado, there is a new budget, and it is going to be spent. 
And whatever vendor is selected at the moment that that budget comes into play is going to be the vendor of record for that account for the rest of time. There's a window that is typically three to four years where there's a feeding frenzy in the category. And the important thing, if you're going to be the longtime leader in that category, is to win the market share battle and get to the number one position. Because as we've discovered from this thing over and over again, number one gets you know the lion's share of the returns from the segment. Number two gets reasonable share. And by the time you get to number three or four, okay. And then after that, you're fighting over scraps. So the tornado strategy was understand that reality and respond to it rapidly. And don't, uh, if you linger, if you say, well, but I want to polish things up, I want to do things better, I want to do this for this, or I want to do a special project for so-and-so and such-and-such, such, then that customer will love you for life. But in the time it took you to do that project, some competitor got five of the, you know, the next customers that you didn't. And then their de facto standards become the de facto standards for the category. And your R&D from then on has got to be, you're continually either trying to maintain some patch to the market leader by the way, the ecosystem organizes around the market leader. So now all the ecosystem brings them the deals before they bring them to you, not because they like them better, but because they are the de facto standard. The way these things self-organize, the tornado is really about how is the world going to organize this category, probably for the next couple of decades. As in, how long does Facebook stay in power? How long does Google stay in power? How long does Microsoft stay in power? How long does Cisco stay in power? I mean, these are long-range things. And, uh, and they're very consequential. I'd like to inspect this a bit. I think it is it's almost like Silicon Valley pablum. Everyone would agree. Scale will be number one. And I think it follows the argument that you and others have made for quite some time. I think that this is what we believe in the tribe. You got to get big and be number one. But when to be number one is an interesting question because most of us are challengers, not market leaders, most of the time, <laughs> you know. And this, yeah. of course, has been my profession for many years. Start from zero yeah. and try to catch up and, and try to take over. And, you know, you, there are some, like, really nice stories. So, like, eBay and I remember uh, when eBay was the smarter company. Asset yep. light, reinventing yep. commerce, yep. a fun yep. experience. You're going to buy your toilet paper the way you buy Pez dispensers one day. It was, you know, maybe 10 times more valuable than Amazon as an early, yeah, early life public it, company. That's reasonable, yeah. I think the reversal has been colossal. Spectacular. Help me think about that, though. So when to be number one or number oh, two. Yeah, it's great. I so, so by the way, the by the way, of being the market leader. That's huge. Yeah, that's great. When, when? So, for example, when was Microsoft ever first? The answer, I think, is never. So the point being, what you have to do is win during the tornado. So prior to the tornado, so one strategy is to be a fast follower. You know, you, you keep your eye on the bowling alley, right? But now you can't. I mean, this is all hypothetical. But, but the idea being, you don't have to be first at that point. The other thing I would just choose, I want to make that point. So that's, you know, we're number one, we're number one. By the way, in any category of, let's say, 20 companies, there's only one number one. So you won't be surprised to hear that my clientele is largely from the other 19. What do you do if you're not number one? And because the world wants the number one to set the de facto standards, to sort of shape the category, to kind of create the, the if you will, the foundational expectations of what this category is supposed to do. But in fact, when you get down to specific problems, the world is often not satisfied or served well by the number one because the number one is being so generic because they're doing the tornado strategy of I want to be you know, all things to all people and I want to be the, the de facto standard and I'll let my ecosystem do all the customization and I will just be a platform. And that, that's the whole platform vision. So that's great. But for if, if you're not number one, then you're not the platform. And now what? And I think the idea then is you, is, but you we call it go back to the bowling alley. And the bowling alley is always open. There's always problems that are unsolved. 
that people will pay a premium to solve. And the, the, the challenge is, you could say, can a large company do this? The challenge is, if you have a large business that has largely gone through a tornado, whether you're number one or number five, I don't care, but it's a real business and it's funding your operations now. And it wants money every year to get you know better, faster, and cheaper. Now a new thing comes along that wants to cross the chasm, and you want to say, okay, I've read the crossing the chasm, we'll run the crossing the chasm playbook. But now you say, well, who's going to run that playbook? Because my sales force is now a tornado Main Street sales force. It's not a crossing the chasm sales force. And by the way, if I try to get them to be, they don't like doing that stuff, and they're not very good at it. They're uh, coin-operated. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, they, and by the way, because I hired them to be. I mean, this is Darwin at work, right? I mean, this was not an accident that they're coin operated, but they are. And so as a result, um, you say, well, I need to then have a specialized sales force to do the next one. And that when the new opportunity is small, you say, well, that's okay. I'm a specialized sales force. That makes sense. But now let's suppose it's being successful and it starts to scale. And now the issues will hang on. I can't afford to keep on having overlays over overlays over overlays with shared commissions and blah, 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 blah. How do I make this thing economical? And that's where the, the large enterprises got flummoxed. They didn't solve the problem, and so they would, they'd get flummoxed, and at some point they would stop. They'd just say, well, we, I don't know what we're doing. We're doing something wrong, so we're going to quit it. And the problem with that is when you start a transformational initiative and stop, you kind of teach the world you're a chump. And the world says, oh, that's another chump. So, okay, well, they're going to be roadkill sooner or later. And then you lose the support of the ecosystem. It gets pretty dark pretty fast. And this, of course, is where the last book yeah, this, takes this, the bull by the horn. Yeah, yeah. This is saying, look, you need to, you, the zoning idea is just, look, just understand there are zones of interest in a large enterprise that are conflicting with each other. You can resolve those conflicts, but you've got to make sure you don't blur the lines between the zones. Because what happens is in the middle of this thing, you're going to take money out of a very profitable business with a very strict ROI performance contract, and you're going to put it into a radically unprofitable business. And the performance zone guy is saying to you, what the hell are you doing? You hold me to this incredibly tough standard. You just gave my money to that guy, and he lost it. And there's no venture capitalist to explain why they're doing that. And so it just doesn't – the logic of enterprise budgeting doesn't hold – up and so as a result, people, you know, people they, they start making bad decisions because it, they just look like that's the decision they're supposed to make. It's the not. internal organization starts chewing itself yeah. up, and so the well, answers, and, I guess, and, and, are in your latest totemic classic, zone to win. Yeah, zone to win. That's the one. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think there's uh, so much work to be done, and your ideas are. I mean, I hope people have told you they are the canon. (laughs) They are in the classical canon of how to change the world. Well, thank you. That's kind of what we're all trying to do one way or another. Thank you so much. Okay, take care.